This is the Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this fifth episode, Alex and JP interview Don van Ravenswey. They discuss Don's experience teaching undergraduate students about the current statistical controversies and the FDA's two significant p-values policy. Also, Don and JP have a surprisingly constructive debate about the merits of the 005 proposal. Welcome to the Bayes Factor podcast. I'm Alex Etz and I'm here with JP De Ruiter, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we're joined today by Don van Ravenswey. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's a bit of a funny story. We're here at the Math Psych Conference in Warwick and we sat down for breakfast next to Don and got to chatting and we said, we're going to go record a podcast. Do you want to be on it? And Don said, sure. So here we are. Um, here we are. Yes, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, all right. So I, uh, I've, I've spent most of my, my life in the Netherlands. I was born in The Hague, but I've lived in Amsterdam since I was three. Um, did my undergrad there. I had a brief stint in Berlin, Germany for my research master. Um, I don't know if that exists in the, in the U.S. system, but it's kind mm. of like a, a grad school thing that, that prepares for PhD positions. Um, then I did my PhD in Amsterdam with Erik Jan Wagemakers, went and did a postdoc in Sydney, Australia, with uh, Professor Ben Newell and Michael Lee. Uh-huh. And You're well connected. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and then after that, I, uh, I went to Newcastle, Australia, to do... Uh, to well, actually my first faculty position with Scott Brown and Andrew Heathcote in the same lab. And then I came back to, uh, to Groningen in the Netherlands, and uh, that's where I live now. Great. Um, are are you anyone else in your family an academic, parents, or...? No. Um, in fact, it goes even further. I th- at least three generations back, no one even attended university. My, uh, my grandfather was a bricklayer, so uh, oh. wow. very, uh, very different. So you must be the black sheep of the family. <laughs> 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 well, I do remember my, uh, my, my late grandfather always, uh, whenever I tried to talk about research, it was like, hmm, yeah, 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 okay. But you're, th- you're teaching, right? <laughs> 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 that was the part he could connect I, I, d- I know some <laughs> people who have no uh, family in academia, and they always ask, the, the family always asks them, so when are you actually going to work? Right. And they mean by work like physical labor that g- makes you sweat. And right. And it's impossible to explain to those people that, for instance, teaching is real hard work. Right. Well, in the U.S., people have this idea that you have the summer off. Right. Oh, yeah. So they yeah. go, oh, you're a professor, so you only work uh, nine months a year. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. not how it works. Would no. that it works that way. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but your, your current job, you're in Groningen, which uh, a, a, an American might read as Groningen, that sounds about right. <laughs> but the first one you said it was correct. Yeah, you can do it. Hey, I'm picking <laughs> it up. Uh, so, w- what is what is your uh, position there? Um, I'm assistant professor, uh, coming to the. the is that what they call UD? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So in in the in the Netherlands as well as in Australia, actually they are segregated. So in Australia you have lecturer and senior lecturer, mm. which same in UK. Yeah, yeah and uh, and in in the Netherlands you have UD two and UD one. 
Oh. So I'm, uh, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm the senior one. So uh, uh, coming on to you had it has been discontinued. Uh, no, no, no. That's that's the associate professor step okay. essentially. Okay. So good, good, good. And what classes do you teach? Um, I teach, I think, five classes total. So um, I do the uh, the first year stats courses, all of them, which is. Well, they're called 1A and 1B, but it boils down to descriptive statistics and then inferential statistics. Mm -hmm. um, I co-teach with um, four uh, other uh, people from the stats department a class called Statistical Solutions to Research Problems in Psychology, ah. which is essentially all of us doing our, our own little niche of what we like in statistics. So that's where uh, I can spew all about Bayesian statistics. And then um, since this year, uh, I've started with a uh, colleague, Rink Huxa, a new course that's called Transparency in Science, uh, which deals with very topical things about... Because uh, there is nothing in the undergrad course about um, pre-registration of your experiments. Or replicability. Right, exactly, that kind of stuff. And most of the reason is that this is, I mean... Very new. Yes, yeah. that's true. I, I actually, when I taught in Germany, uh, I had it in my Introduction to Philosophy of Science course. Right. I snuck it in there. And oh, did you? And, and, it, and it often goes like that, right? A little module here, a little yeah. thing there. And Rink and I said, look, it's important to have an actual proper course about this. And I know that, that yeah. Egan does something, something similar in Amsterdam. So right. we thought it was important. So we set it up and uh, the first year went really smoothly and uh, it's looking to be a mainstay. So uh, cool. Very nice. Mm. And... Uh, do you have any outside hobbies? So when I Googled your name first, what pops up was this Magic the Gathering uh, results, card game results. Uh, are you still active in this? Can you tell us about this hobby? What is it? Um, all right, all right. Many questions. So, so, so first things first. Um, it's, uh, it's officially called a trading card game. And what that mm -hmm. means is um, these, these things used to be in these collectible sticker book formats where you buy packs of things and you try to collect all the... Pokemon? Yeah, that's, that's another one of, of that kind. And you try to, well, collect all the different kinds of them and then uh, you have your collection complete. But uh, later on, that idea was, was generalized so that you could also play with these cards. So play against an opponent and then um, in the informal version, you can play for, for anti, like for a card. And if you win, mm. you get that card or something. But I've never really been a, a kitchen table player because I've played games all my life and I'm very competitive. Um, my dad... This is going to sound like boasting. I apologize in advance. But my dad was European champion in the board game Backgammon in his day. Wow. Mm. Uh, so he's he's had a period in which he was a full-time gamer, and that was all he did. Um, so it's very difficult when you're, uh, when you're someone's kid to not get a little bit of a, a yeah. twist of that. I remember I was four years old, and we were sitting in a hotel room in uh, Monte Carlo. He was preparing for some big tournament. And he, he taught me the game already, and of course I was no good at it because I was four. But uh, but he made me feel really important. He said, like, you're my, uh, my my testing partner, and, uh, <laughs> and we, we played games. And the way we set it up was that um, during the match one time, I could request to swap sides. So I'd get his position and he'd oh, get mine. Oh, that's clever. And, uh, uh, except for in the, in the end game stage. That was kind of like the... And of course, when you're four, you're not smart enough to realize that you just the first half you need to screw everything up and then get <laughs> 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 the. So because uh, you, you, you keep trying to win, and then uh, but yeah. yeah, and then we would switch, and then he would beat me anyway. But uh, but it was fun. Um, so back to magic. Um, this game has really um, um, really grabbed me. Uh, what is really nice about it compared to a lot of other games is that every four months a new set of cards 
like additional cards comes out. So the game is very fluid because of this. The 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 changes. The ground rules stay the same, but the building blocks change, and therefore the game doesn't become stale. Like, like for instance, the board game Catan is really nice. Yes, but if I you've play that. If you've played this often enough, you know that at a certain point, if you play with the same people, you've seen all the permutations, and it's kind of like. Yeah. It's still fun, but a little bit less fun. <coughs> yeah, and and this is really fun about about magic. It's because the the yeah the building blocks keep changing. The the games themselves change as well, and I think that's really sweet. And you play in so tournaments. Yes, I. Uh, wow. Three years ago was the closest I came to um, um, briefly considering if I should scale back on academia. I um, I. I'm not going to say any numbers, but uh, but Is I have more money in this game than in academia. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Look, let let let's say this: um, <laughs> if you're in the in the top thirty of the world ranking list, you can support yourself. It's a normal oh. job, oh. and you can do really well with it. I, I don't think it's a normal job, though. No, and there's a lot of it's it's like. It's it's a mild version of being a poker pro. Um, right. Ah, yes, that's a good. Analogy. I'm saying mild yeah. version because mm-hmm. you earn less in this mm-hmm. world. Right. right. But but the the idea is the same. So it's it's you can get a lot of income, but it's very unstable. Mm. So mm. and because there's a, an element of chance in here, like there is in poker, you can mm. just run bad for a season and then you have no income, which wow, uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, is ultimately not. It's like when you all your p values keep being over point oh six. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> But uh, this is why you see that that these 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 players often supplement their income by uh, writing uh, strategy articles for for websites, and that gives oh. a, a semblance of steady income. Right. And I was I was close to there there, but not quite. Um, and and part of this is that I had to juggle it with my academic career as well, and and I I made the not so difficult decision to uh, not not go into the actual gaming thing because I like academia too much. And uh, but uh, yeah, two or three weeks ago, I played a, a fairly serious tournament in uh, in Amsterdam, and I mm. won thousand dollars. So it's well, it's still nice. yeah. it's it, it's still nice, and uh, and it's it's like a hobby that this is the way I see it: a hobby that pays for itself and and comes close to paying for the traveling that's involved with it. Because are there computer programs to play this game? Yes, okay. yes, Magic Online. But okay. the interface, um, maybe you've heard of a game called Hearthstone. Maybe not. I've heard no. of it. Um, yeah. No, it's I hate games, but, <laughs> <laughs> but these guys have actually too old. <laughs> these these guys have actually done it properly with a, an actual uh, slick-looking interface and stuff. But uh, so, uh, do they outplay humans, or are humans still better? The computer. No, program. the the players oh, play. Oh, uh, what I mean, I they connect online. Yeah. Yes, I know. I, yeah. I get that. Ah, so. you mean like is there an actual AI yes. like these like these chess computers? Uh, yeah. No, not okay. yet. Uh, it's time um, to build one. You do have them for the for contract bridge. The yeah, the I normal know. cards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, cool. But these, because I play that game as well. But uh, well, that's really an interesting hobby. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it actually is. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll. I'll uh, 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 so I wanted to ask you. Maybe it sounds old, but what is the first time you heard of Bayesian statistics? Do you remember that? Um, I'm not 100% sure if this was the first time, or the second time, or the third, fourth, fifth time. But it's definitely one of the first times, and the first time I got actual exposure to it. Yeah. Um, and this was when I was already a PhD student, I think. 
Okay. So, uh, like I said, I was a PhD student in Erik Jan Wagemaker's lab. Um, okay, yes, then it's at some point unavoidable that you hear of it. You would think that, but it wasn't quite like that. Because <laughs> how it actually happened is that um, uh, EJ started out with the same toolbox in inferential statistics that, that most of us did. Yeah. Um, but he had a an ongoing collaboration with Michael <coughs> Lee, uh, <coughs> who was doing a lot with actual implementation of Bayesian statistics and uh, EJ got uh, actually we talked about this yesterday EJ uh, got annoyed that he wasn't able to do this and around that time we kind of set up a little um, weekly lab meeting mm -hmm. for the sole purpose of learning the program Wimbugs which ah. is this, this build your own so Bayesian all the pointers model. go back to Michael Lee right right and and I think it's fair to say that uh, but I suspect that he will, EJ will tell you himself in the in the podcast how that happened. But uh, he did. We uh, all right. So we all learned Wimbugs at the same time, oh. essentially. Um, of course, EJ had more more baggage at the time. Us being lowly grad students had not nearly read as much as he had. But uh, the actual learning of that program we all did simultaneously. And uh, and I remember um, that I was thinking at the time. Hold on, this is not directly relevant to my PhD position here. Um, what a waste of time. <laughs> Maybe not quite like that. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Winbox is an interesting program. If you've, if you've never worked with it, it's, it's buggy as hell. And when something... Fitting yeah. By the name. When something goes wrong, uh, it says trap, unavoidable error or something yeah. like that. And you, but you don't know what the error is. Mm. And it can be quite frustrating when you, uh, mm -hmm. when you don't know what you're doing yet. Uh, these days you have, you have Jags and you have Stan or you can write your own sampler in R and that's not so much of an issue. But yeah, in those days the options were somewhat more limited. What year of round was this for you? Let me count back. I can reverse engineer this. 2008, 2009. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so before you sort of learned all this uh, new Bayesian stuff, did you know that the, all the stuff you had learned before had a name, that it was frequentist or classical? Or yeah, it must have it must have come by, but it's it was a very sort of detail in the back of your mind kind of thing. Just like as an undergrad, you'll probably hear the name Fisher or or you hear name and Pearson, and you're like, yeah, okay, that's cool, and you just file that away. Yeah. And because well, do you like also tell your students uh, from the beginning, listen, what we're gonna do is not the only statistics. It's oh, just absolutely. One of, yeah, exactly. But it's and it's interesting, right? Because um, when I started in Groningen, it's the first time when I became responsible for the entire first year statistics curriculum. So I was very excited. I was like, okay, I can I can build this up <laughs> from the ground. Them. And, uh, and also because um, I I was the uh, uh, what's the word successor of uh, Richard Mori, oh. who also has strong uh, well affinity with Bayesian statistics, obviously. So I thought, okay, this could be cool, and I can I can really get something happening here because change needs to start at the younger generation, I mm -hmm. think. And I thought I agree. this was really good. But in practice, what I'm seeing. Um, and I'm, I'm working here now two years, but I can already see how this is going, is you tell first-year student stuff, <coughs> and you tell them, okay, this is how it works, um, this is what you see a lot in the field, this mm -hmm. is this is the, the, what the most, most people do. What most people do, but there are a number of issues with it, and here is why, and yada, yada, yada. And then at the end of this course, everyone's really, well, not everyone, of course, but um, students are really like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, fascinating. I always thought statistics was objective, but I see it's not. Actually, I wrote a blog post about the myth of objective statistics and how it's not. Oh, really we'll link to, link to that. So yeah. Okay, yeah, that would be cool. But uh, um, but what I wanted to say is that works for a bit 
until they come to their third year and they have to write a bachelor thesis and they get a supervisor and the supervisor says, well, what are you talking about? The, this, is, uh, this is the consensus in the field. You just, you just have to work this way because this is how everyone does it. And as an undergrad, you do what your supervisor tells you. And yes. I've, I've noticed that it's extremely yeah. difficult to, well, maybe not all of them, but the ones that are, <laughs> the ones that are not interested in academia certainly just jump through the hoops that are put in front of them. And it's at times frustrating, but uh, it changes probably slow. The other thing, of course, being that textbooks just are all exclusively frequentist. Yes. And uh, if you're lucky, you get one that says, ooh, but there's a better idea, and it's called confidence intervals. And <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well, it's just the same <laughs> way. <idea. laughs> <Right. laughs> I see. Uh, so um, maybe we can talk about this paper that you wrote with John uh, Ioannidis. Um, yeah. How did you? How did this How'd connection come up? Yeah. And could you tell us about the paper? Um, yes, because he's well, very, you know, well known for his most published findings are false claims. Yes, yeah, those these types of sort of yeah, titles to uh, papers. Yeah. Right? So, so, so there are a number of things happening there. The first thing is that uh, in Groningen, I started um, working with the UMCG department, which is essentially their their medical uh, group. And uh, I was chatting with a bunch of people from the psychiatry department, and they were actually working on uh, doing a reanalysis of some um, FDA trial data, essentially saying like um, there's a certain FDA policy that that uh, that combines clinical trials, and this leads to FDA approval. But the way this works, this is how I how I heard it then somewhat informally, is that they only look at the statistically significant ones, mm -hmm. which sort of and and this led to a, a different project that's the paper of which is still being is still submitted, but essentially a meta analysis of all these clinical trials to, to combine the evidence in the in the field of antidepressants. But this 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 led to this idea of well maybe it's a good idea to examine this FDA policy in more detail and look at it as a whole at the same time I was busy writing a grant application and um, um, I sit in the office of my uh, my funding officer and 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 someone else from the university from the talent development uh, thing and he says this is a really cool idea but if you want to sell this for a grant you need to make sure um, that uh, that this is not just your own quirky idea, but but that this is actually something that people that matter in this field also think is a good idea. Um, here is where my personal thing comes in. I have a, a bit of a science crush on uh, on Johnny Oanidas, so uh, mm -hmm. um, and and I just decided, well, I'm just going to be bold and I'm just going to email him and say, look, I have this idea and I have this grant I want to write, and uh, I would love to visit you this summer at Stanford for a week and uh, and for us to work on this paper if you're interested half expecting to get shot down but uh, um, he said oh yeah no, that sounds like a great idea and uh, wow then this wow. is exactly how it happened I, I, I went there uh, we worked on this for a week when I say we worked on this for a week um, he works on a million things at the same time I'm but, sure, yeah. but mm -hmm. we met every day for an hour and we worked on this oh, project cool. and, uh, and it it's very good and he works incredibly fast and it was a very uh, very rewarding experience, and then at mm -hmm. the end of it, we had a first draft, and um, the rest is history. I think. So, <laughs> can you explain what this paper is? I mean about that's yeah. that's yeah. probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> summarize it briefly. Yeah. So the um, like I alluded to the 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 FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, has this policy of requiring two independently conducted clinically clinical trials, each having um, compelling evidence. 
um, in favor of this new drug working compared mm -hmm. to a placebo. Um, the thing is that what it doesn't stipulate is two out of how many attempts. Right. And we've seen, uh, so I'd seen that in that work on the antidepressants that... Um, so that could be 50 studies and only right. two were... Right, but even registered studies, right? I mean, aside from the issue of publication bias, which mm -hmm. is, a, is in of itself a big problem. Where you problem. sort of hide the failed studies. Right, yeah. right. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, I need to be more explicit about oh, that. Oh, that's great. But here in this particular case, that's not even the case, right? Th these are the five reported clinical trials, and it's just they're out in the open. Two of them worked and three of them didn't. Um, <laughs> but our policy is we have two convincing results, so right. uh, we endorse this medication. So I thought, for I thought only psychologists were that crazy. Well, but so for convincing, they mean statistically significant, or is it is it spelled out like this? In or? their guidance for industry, it's kept as vague as I said it. Okay. What it boils down to in practice is that it it's yeah too P statistically significant. Be lower than 0.05. And th okay. this is frightening because this is about actual medicine, right? It's not yes. not like what we believe or something. It's really. Yes, in, in that sense, the FDA is different from uh, what we do as social scientists in the sense that they, uh, Naaman Pearson, have to make a yes-no decision about mm -hmm. something. Either you endorse or you don't. There's yeah. no middle ground there. Um, so they have to make a call. But yeah, then you, th th there, there's all these like implications about, well, where do you put your 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 criterion right is it is it a bad idea to flood the market with medication that potentially doesn't work or do you want to err on the side of well um we don't want something that could potentially work not on the market because people may be dying of of whatever disease it is that this drug is is fighting against mm -hmm. um my personal inclination but this is entirely subjective is that it 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 does in a lot of contexts more harm also for the trust of, of the people to have medication on the market that doesn't work. But I imagine that everyone makes that decision for themselves. The issue here was though that um, to us statisticians, it, it sounds quite intuitive that two out of two attempts is not the same body of evidence as two out of five. So or I think two out of 15 or 20. Or exactly, yeah. so regardless of what you decide to do there, you need, you need some kind of consistent level of, of, of evidence before you make these decisions. And, and that's where, where uh, Bayesian statistics, in my opinion, comes in. And that's also the tenor of the paper we wrote. Essentially, we don't say, uh, this is the exact level because I'm not a medical expert, so I, I can't make that call for them. But I can say, based on how you guys are doing this right now, this leads to wildly differing levels of evidence, sometimes even um, right, two out of X significant trials where the overall body of evidence actually is in favor of there not being an effect, and I think that can be very harmful. Okay, so, so the, the, the FDA logic is really like, if there's some positive evidence, that is taken seriously and we ignore the rest. Well, um, this this paper is by far the most controversial I've ever written, mm -hmm. and I've, I've since had a lot of responses along the lines of, well, do you seriously think uh, the FDA uh, makes decisions uh, solely based on this? Um, mm -hmm. And that's a difficult argument to get into because mm -hmm. according to their documents, this is all they base the, the things on. And you can actually retrieve the information where you see that this two out of five thing is not a, a straw man or an isolated incident. No, this no. kind of stuff does happen. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's difficult to know what's really happening behind closed doors. So I would argue that at the very least, you need to formalize exactly. what other things come into if the If they do something else, they should write that up. Right. So that it's, it's transparent to the public. Yeah. 
well, I mean, us as statisticians have at least some ideas about this, and it would be good to maybe pin it down a little bit more. Mm. So is your goal to sort of get the FDA to um, make any changes? Have you, uh, are you trying to implement influence policy with this type of work? So um, I don't quite have the connections, but when I was at Stanford, I talked to Steve Goodman about this also, oh. who does have these connections. Yes, very um, influential. Yes. And uh, he, he has a direct line to people from the FDA. Um, and it's definitely something we talked about at the time. But I imagine with this stuff, change is slow. It's also true that the FDA is aware of Bayesian statistics. They have a separate document where they say uh, they encourage researchers to use this whenever they can. Mm -hmm. So I certainly don't want to paint them black. Um, I, right. think, I think the issue is not so much here that, um, that the policy as and of itself is wrong. But because it's left a little too vague, the way it... it works breaks breaks down in practice is just a way that we know can be improved upon uh, th th there's a guy in, in britain I, c I can't remember his name right now uh, he wrote this book called bad signs uh, about and he's like arguing for better standards of evidence in british medicine or in european medicine actually. is it goodrich no no no, no. okay um we'll have uh. to look it up I'll yeah we'll look it up we'll look it up uh, s s uh, come on this is actually relevant for your work but yeah, Goldacre. Goldacre. Ben yeah, Goldacre. Goldacre. Thank mm -hmm. you. I had a memory for you. Do you know him? Uh, I haven't read the book, okay, but, but I know the name. It yeah. might be interesting to contact him because yeah, he's working on basically the same issue. Uh, and uh, and you have this Cochrane Institute, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. have you any comments on that? You work, look at that, uh, their, their standards? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really good that that exists uh, because it means there's a lot of information out in the open for right. us to use on and uh, mm -hmm. and without wanting to say too much um, uh, uh, there is a project in the wings in which uh, okay. I plan to do a large overhaul of some of the Cochrane things very nice um, but so yeah maybe we should explain it. Cochrane uh, is the issue that, that also wants to document failed studies right right yeah so they basically pre-register and Mm, okay. And have a, re a record of all the things. Yeah, you I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, so I mean, in a way, the medical sciences are are ahead of the social sciences. Right. There are a lot of these. these Although the FDA didn't sound as the way you summarized it. Well, uh, too but much they ahead. still require you to register your studies and okay. you know report all these right. outcomes. Okay. Right. That's, so that's good. Because yeah. uh, I'm a while ago, they realized that with you know people's lives on the line, all this money right. on the line, mm. that really you got to get it closer to right than what they were doing before mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um, but in this vein <coughs> at the psychonomic society meeting this year um, you've put together a symposium on uh, sort of improving statistical inferences and practices um, yeah. i'm going to be part of this <coughs> excuse me yes as well could you thank you for joining us yes <laughs> well, could you explain sort of how yeah. this came to be and who's going to be a part of it and the topics that you'll cover um Yes, so uh, it's it's this is more of the same, in really, right? Uh, this idea that we're now starting, that we're not now starting, of course. Uh, this foundational paper by John Ioannidis that you mentioned in two thousand five mm -hmm. is is one of of many uh, well indicators that maybe we need to think more critically about these things, and. Um, it's very topical right now, and uh, uh, together with a colleague in Kuxa, we decided it would be a good idea to to have a symposium at the next psychonomics meeting and have uh, a bunch of, of the best people in the world that work on this uh, together and give talks on, on how we may improve uh, uh, statistical right. inference in science. 
And uh, yeah, uh, the symposium has been approved. So in the lineup, we have uh, yourself, as you said. We have Joachim van der Kerkhoven. We have uh, Jeff Rauder and Steve mm. Lewandowski and Dora Matska. And uh, um, it, it, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these people work with Bayesian statistics. Um, but uh, I don't know if... Um, if if Steve's method is necessarily Bayesian, I don't, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. I don't imagine. So, uh, but I think he'll he'll be the only one with a non-Bayesian talk. Okay. Uh, but I mean, we don't discriminate, <coughs> right? So no, no. <laughs> diversity and tolerance. Right. And <laughs> yeah. Um, so now that we, we actually all talking here at uh, at the Math Psych uh, conference uh, in Warwick about this uh, new um, 005 paper, as I. Uh, that decided to that coin is it. A good name for it. I like because it. the right. point <laughs> 005 sounds so cumbersome. Right. So, uh, and we we actually also yesterday talked about it with uh, with uh, EJ Wagenmakers. Could you explain uh, the, the idea for people who so might not have heard that yeah. episode? So, so basically, uh, uh, 72 scientists, some statisticians, some serious methodologists, researchers, uh, wrote a paper in which they argue that. Uh, whatever your views on statistics uh, and, and practices, it is at least a good idea to uh, set the threshold for what is considered significant um, or good evidence uh, to 0 0.005 instead of the commonly used 0 0.05. So basically 10 times lower. And um, and then so they they say okay they write actually like okay uh, we know that is not the final solution we know that it's it's uh, uh, it's not um, uh, gonna solve everything and uh, but it at least makes sort of the evidence that we will get better and we can still use 0.05 for suggestive findings but not for solid evidence and that's sort of the gist of the paper and. Uh, if, if I understand correctly, you are working on a reply to the paper? That's that's putting a bit strong, but uh, um, it's not that concrete. Considering. Yeah. Considering. Considering, considering a reply. <coughs> yeah. but, but more importantly uh, than whether it's going to be paper, uh, do you agree with this paper? Not at all. Not no. at all. So I why? Wha what is your what's your beef with this, this paper? It, the, the beef is on many levels, but but I think my, my largest beef is a pragmatic one because, and you already highlighted this a little bit, but at the end of the paper, they say something like this. Um, I, I want to be careful to not mischaracterize, but the gist of it is like, well, um, it's no, not the case that you can't report p-values between 0.005 and 0.05 anymore, but instead you now have to say, rather than that it's statistically significant, you have to say that the evidence is suggestive. Okay. And this to me seems very counterproductive because nine out of ten researchers are going to read this as like oh oh that's great i don't i don't have to change the way i, I analyze my data i don't have to change my practice oh so you want to actually to be stricter you want to say that anything above point zero zero five is just no you can't do it no what, what i'm saying is this paper gives the wrong message i think i think it gives the message that these 72 very influential statisticians endorse the fact that you can uh, do your analyses the same way you did you just have to change these two words in your reporting and then everything's fine uh -huh. and oh. and and okay. I hadn't thought of it like that. No, me neither. Yeah. And maybe that maybe that's too cynical of you, but I think that a lot of scientists are scared of statistics mm -hmm. and of rightly, I think. Yeah. Rightly, yes, yes. And having having to change their 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 ways of doing this, and I think there is a big risk that um, 
that if you read this paper, you were maybe considering uh, doing things a little different, uh, thinking thinking more about how you do your analyses, and then you read these papers like, oh, oh, this is not that difficult at all. I can just now I just say that that the evidence is suggestive, and I'm good. I'm I'm doing a properly endorsed uh, n rewrite of my results, and everything's fine. Yeah, but and I, I see your point, but I want to sort of defend the the paper a little bit, and then okay. listen to your response to that. So it, 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 I have a sort of a metaphor in my head. It's like, okay, suppose you have a, a country where uh, people don't drive very well. The Germans would say, "Oh, Holland," because that's what they think of the Netherlands. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, but uh, th I'll leave them to make that joke. But uh, there is a country X, and the people are just bad drivers. So you have a lot of traffic accidents. And now uh, someone says, you know what, let's at least lower the maximum speed from 200 kilometers per hour to 100 kilometers per hour so we have fewer accidents. And that is, I think, equivalent with the proposal here. So you still haven't solved the underlying problem, which is that people can't drive, or in statistics, uh, that people do p-hacking or, or have low power or, 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 or abuse the wrong, use the wrong paradigm and abuse statistics. Uh, so you still haven't solved that, but for the time being, it, the world will improve if we, uh, in my metaphor, lower the maximum speed uh, or in the real paper, uh, make the threshold for what is considered to be good evidence a little bit higher. You, don't you think it, 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 it's, it does that, at least? I, if we follow your metaphor, then, yeah. then getting rid of p-values would be equivalent to getting rid of cars, right? No, um, it would be getting rid of... F yeah, p-values would probably... Well, if you, if you replace p-values by base factors, it would be replacing bad drivers by, say, autonomous cars that don't crash into each other. But there might be too strong of... Uh, uh, an extension of yeah we, we don't want to run away with the metaphor if but, if but if there's a great train network then no I don't think it's a good idea to stop even if I buy into this metaphor which but I find wait, wait, difficult but 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 given that there are some drivers and that they're bad don't you think it's always a good idea to lower the maximum speed well the other thing here is that this solution is not lowering the maximum it's saying well you can still drive it's 200 but you need to put a flag on your on the roof of your car that that says like I'm going over 100. Well, that's but that's what I suggested before. You, you want to be even strict. You want to say no. 0.05 is just not not good at all. At least mm. no, because I I'm, I'm, I still don't agree. But I so but what I is, what is my disagreement is less strong then. Okay. Uh, what 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 what, what, what is your suggestion? What would you if you had to write a paper uh, that that would say okay now how we're going to improve. You wouldn't probably do the 005 paper because you not uh, you don't um, like that one. But what would your solution be? Look, from from a Bayesian perspective, um, I am going to be dragged into some advantages of base 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 factors or Bayesian statistics in general. Mm -hmm. But um, with p values, you can't quantify evidence in favor of the null hypothesis. Mm -hmm. This solution doesn't do anything about this. Yeah. P-values bias against the null hypothesis, in particular when there's an alternative hypothesis that's even less likely. We've seen this in popular media cases like Sally Clark, who yeah. got uh, convicted of having murdered her two infant babies. On I should the basis of wrong reasoning, yeah. Right. Um, we'll link to a, a summary of this. Right. There's, there's the issue of optional stopping, which is mm -hmm. also still the same with this lowering of the bar. Um, there is still the issue that... that 
and this is more a practical issue, but that people misinterpret what a p-value means, this is also something that will not change if you lower this. So, so there's all these substantive reasons why, uh, well, me and, and, and many of the people on that paper don't like p-values. Right, right. Um, so uh, in principle, maybe I'm too principled. But so what, they, what they are saying is, yeah, we know that. And, and I mean, EJ would, and so we would agree with everything you said about p-values. Right. Yes. But if we assume, given that people will, if we assume that people won't change their love for p-values, then it is better to have a point zero zero five than point zero five. And okay. you you don't think that if this paper is out there, that someone that may five or ten years down the line uh, change to to in at least in my opinion better statistical inference that would have changed their ways five or ten years down the line is now five or ten years down the line going to look back and say, oh yeah, there's that there's this paper that endorses this. So this is you, so you're suggesting we should. Sort of this slows down. This slows down. Continue down doing 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 nonsense statistics no. in order to make it more likely no. that we will change. No, completely? no, no, no. I'm saying okay. this this holds back proper change. Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. It's yeah. it's yeah. it's not the case that it provides a bridge to good change. I don't think it provides a barrier because now people don't have to make the change. It it it's like a duct tape solution. It, it sanctions what what they're already doing with a slight tweak. That's I very principles. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. Feel free to disagree with me, but this well, is I, how I, I feel I about it. Well, I do disagree because <laughs> I think I think the people are not going to massively change to Bayesian statistics, unfortunately. And as long as they don't, then at least have uh, a kind of a higher level of evidence. Yes. I don't know. I think that well, it's interesting to to start to hear these perspectives from uh, different people interested in methods. Like you'll have. Uh, <coughs> Richard Morey, who I don't want necessarily want to speak for him, but he'll say, well, one of the problems is that this threshold uh, should determine uh, be determined by the research question itself, for example. Right. Or uh, EJ will, well, we know EJ's position. He yeah, supports well, this. He's so. an author of it. Yeah. Um, but <coughs> it is interesting to see that there's so many differing opinions on people who necessarily would be happy if everyone just abandoned p-values, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's quite interesting to me, at least, that there's such a diversity on this this topic exactly. Yeah, I was right? surprised. I mean and, and there's also the authors have a sort of, uh, at least in my subjective uh, impression, sort of there's a sort of a desperation, like, oh my God, okay, if, okay, good, 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 we're not going to convince you of doing base, but then at least, you know, please. But some of the authors aren't... Uh, Bayesians at all. No, 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 of course, they wouldn't right. have the same argument. But yes. But it's also interesting to note uh, some of the of the notables that are not on this list, right? I mean, Gelman's not on the, on as, a, as an author That's on this right. paper. He actually, Spiegelhalter is not on this. I don't exactly remember his critique, but I think it was along the lines of, uh, you know, this entire paradigm is basically useless for researchers, and here you should... Uh, this will do nothing to fix the underlying problems, right? Mm -hmm. So another sort of uh, principle. Uh, principle, yeah. The principle is just like uh, if it's not perfect, it's not good. And, and but I, yeah, uh, I have to caveat that I can't exactly remember what his argument is, but that was right. sort of my impression of it. But uh, well, it's very interesting to to hear these. I was actually surprised. To, I don't know about you, but uh, I thought this is going to be a slam dunk with the. I mean, I would. Uh, no, I, I thought it would be. Uh, people would object to it, but not for those reasons. People would say, oh, no, we can't do 
0 0.005 because then we need too many subjects. So that right. kind no, of but I think that's you're tired. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so do I. No, so do I. But that's a, that's a good the good part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but so you're not worried about type two error rates or missing effects by I having I too little power. I definitely think that that the way experiments in social science are conducted could do with a lot more data. And I think that if that is a consequence of this, then I think that's a good thing. Absolutely, yes. No, but I, I, so I expected that kind of argument, like the, the, the type two error and the, and the oh my god, we are gonna do so much, uh, so many subjects. Uh, that that's what I. But I didn't expect sort of the um, the, the the critical people, like for instance, you, critical of NHST, uh, to to also be against it. That's that surprised me. I mean, so I I collaborate with with someone that. Um, that does research in the field of uh, uh, language acquisition in babies. Mm -hmm. And actually, as it turns out, in that field, uh, or this is hearsay, right? But uh, what she tells me is that there they often work with an alpha of 0.1 because yes. babies are very noisy and they will only look at your monitor for 10 trials or 15 trials mm -hmm. and then they do something else again. So you just have as much data as you have and an alpha of 0.05 is not realistic in that field. And I mean, that gets you thinking, right? I mean, but that that corresponds, according to this Berger et al. calibration, to a likelihood ratio of like one to one and a half. Right. So that's not a lot of evidence, and and so I would argue that maybe maybe this is kind of what Rich is saying, right? Different fields require different alphas. I I don't really know how I feel about that because I mean, weak evidence is weak evidence. Yeah. But, uh, whether you do babies or drugs, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so. <laughs> But at least, so when y when you do something like this with, say, a base factor, you can then at least you know what you don't know. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's exactly right. That's, that's One right. of the things that they're doing in this developmental field now is the uh, they're creating these big research groups, the Many Babies Project, yes, for yes. example, to bring all these labs together with all their right. Very noisy babies that don't want to. <laughs> that's an ambiguous. Uh, <laughs> that's two meanings. Yes, well, uh, to sort of try to overcome this, and maybe that's where psychology as a field will end up needing to go in general is uh, towards the sort of physics model, where if you want to get these uh, very small particles to show up you need everybody working together essentially right. mm -hmm. uh, mm, yeah. um, yeah. you need to know about the occasional no results as well yeah well yes you do yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah I think my takeaway from this discussion I don't necessarily have a strong opinion on uh, this threshold change or mm -hmm. this proposed way of going about it uh, I'm still sort of undecided on this um, but to me it's just it's so interesting that um, and I think maybe some others <coughs> that are watching this debate unfold have this impression that, oh, you know, statistics and methodology, it's not a, a solved field, right? right it's right. alive and it's changing and yes, there's and no right answer to any of these things, right? Lots I mean, of discussion. Uh, except for my answer, that's the right <laughs> answer. <laughs> uh, I of think course. a lot of us feel this way. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but really, you know, it's a, there's a huge diversity of opinions in statistics. And I think... This yeah. can be sort of scary to people at first, but well, yeah. But I think it also, you know, it sort of gives people uh, license to be okay to disagree with a, a recommendation or to sort of question things that right. maybe they were taught or set in yeah, stone. Yeah, we right? need to, um, as Timothy Leary said, right? think for yourself, question authority. Well, there yeah. you go. Perhaps on that note, we should wrap up.
Yes, so um, thank you very much, uh, Don van Ravenswaai. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Don, for doing an, a spontaneous episode with us. Very after nice. After a breakfast meeting. No right. problem. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast. <laughs>